This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. This is a little bit of a different episode because uh, chapter 18 ended up being um, rather long, so we've split it into two different episodes of the podcast. So this episode will be uh, chapter 18, part one, and then the episode for next week will be chapter 18, part two. Um, whatever chapter you're listening to, remember that it is brought to you by El Yucateco Hot Sauce, the deliciousness that never stops. Um, Brent Van Tassel, my partner in crime, and I love it. He's actually the one who turned me on to it um, and made me love it and everyone else. Um, again, there's a range of flavors and a range of heat levels. Um, if you like super hot, then you want to get the triple X. If you like it more mild, you want to get the Chipotle. Um, much like Wesley Snipes in Passenger 57, I say always bet on black. And I like El Yucateco Black as my uh, preferred flavor. But check them out. Um, it's, worth a, it's worth a shot. Buy it. Try it. You're going to love it. If you like hot stuff, this is the stuff to do. And if you don't like hot sauce, you have a crazy uncle or a spouse or a child who does. So get it for them and they'll be super happy. Um, we are a member of the Podbelly Podcast uh, Network, and we are, in fact, a Podbelly original. So if you go to podbelly.com, you can find a great directory of really cool podcasts, and you can find some tips and tricks if you're thinking about uh, podcasting on your own. Um, as always, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash mindframepodcast. Uh, your, uh, your participation there, your help there, your donations there are super helpful. Um, they help us do everything from server space to, to mailings to all the, all the prices and the uh, costs that accrue along with a podcast. Um, and it's a great way to support the show. So if you go there also, um, if you buy in, you can end up getting the sit down episodes, which we do every single week for every chapter. So if you like to hear us talk about it, theorize, answer questions, pose more questions, that's the way to get those episodes. Um, having said that, we are now going to return back to the world of Captain Claire Campana. She has traveled uh, across the solar system um, in another ship, and she's finally made her way to her ship, the Eleanor Gray, where she is about to become stationed as captain. So uh, let's take a look at Claire and see what happens as she finally sets foot on her ship. Chapter 18, Captain Campana, 2142. Captain Campana stood once again on the deck plating of the Eleanor Gray. This trusted old lady, so loved by her father that he gave his life in her defense, was asleep and ready for Campana, the new Campana, to wake her up. A private ceremony to do that very thing was about to take place. The ship was populated by repair drones and human workers busily restoring the ship since she was scuttled a year and a half ago. For now, the captain made her way to the bridge, where she would be issued formal command of the ship, its systems, and its crew, including her framer. Campana walked up the halls. Compared to the exotic nature of the morphing hall of the Clinton, the ship seemed ancient. And, Claire had to admit, since the Eleanor Gray was the oldest ship still serving in the fleet, Maybe ancient she was. Two very serious marines from the station escorted Campana through the halls, and people parted and ducked through bulkheads as they approached. Something about the fleeing people, their hunch and expression, made her think they were avoiding a captain more than the marines. The yells of construction crews requesting a different tool or asking for a measurement echoed through the dead space like the voices of very busy ghosts. 
325 souls were lost when the atmosphere burned, including all seven officers on the bridge, including her father. He was the Gray's true captain. He was supposed to sit in that seat and make the calls, not her. But Commodore Nechayev once again assured her otherwise before she departed the Clinton on a shuttle bound for Akunga Station. Claire Campana was to sit in her captain's chair and make the decisions she would make. Closer to the bridge, where construction was more intense, she passed a hallway full of workers from the station, wearing yellow construction alls. She smiled and gave a very casual salute, more of a wave, but the man who made eye contact with Campana was far away from here. His eyes were glazed, that odd mixture of intense focus and mental drifting that came from being pushed. He was in a different space than this hallway, a mental space. He was heavily under the influence of the Akunga Station's framer, allowing himself to be a drone and work without making his own conscious decisions, work more efficiently than any human being had ever worked before the pushing. That was the whole point of framing. The captain passed the workers and entered a lift. Lieutenant Begay was eager to be with her for this, but they both knew he couldn't be. Naval tradition held that this was a private ceremony, two people only, and this crewless ship, manned only by repair crew, was about as private as it got. Nobody from the ship's manifest was allowed to board until Campana took the oath. The lift opened onto the bridge. Unlike the rest of the ship, which was a work in progress, the bridge was a gleaming restoration. Campana had spent time here years ago on a Christmas when the Eleanor Gray was in orbit around Earth. She knew the bridge, had locked its every monitor and station in her brain when she pictured her father doing work out in the arms of Saturn. But this redesigned bridge was not his bridge. His old flat monitors were replaced with hollow light panels, and the seated bridge stations were replaced with simple benches where the personnel would sit and toy with the holograms. The system wasn't compatible for the smart caller heads-up displays, but this was still a few generations ahead of the original design specs. In many ways, the gray was now as modern as the Clinton, but with normal human walls. The captain's chair, with its high-tech arms full of touch pads and emergency buttons, was on a little pitcher's mound in the very center of the 360-degree bridge. From it, she'd see all things important. As tradition allowed, only one person was on the bridge when Campana arrived for the ceremony. It was Captain Kathy Botha. She sat in the main chair, swiping around at the display hollows hovering in the air all around the captain's chair. The displays shut down as soon as Campana entered the bridge, and the computer automatically emitted a classic three-note whistle letting people know the captain was on deck, if there were only people there to hear it. How many times had her father heard that tone? Surely enough that it was just background noise, no different than the hatch sliding shut behind him. Captain Botha stood and shook hands with Campana. No salute. Here she is, Captain. A bit more spit and polish from Akunga and she's ready to launch. She'll be better than she was when your father helmed her, but a might bit worse at his passing. Botha was a short woman in her fifties, Caucasian, which was rare for a naval officer and her standard was accented with what sounded like the drawing out of vowels that could come from South Africa, maybe. Thank you, Captain Botha. Please call me Kathy. We're both captains here. There isn't anyone else in this whole damn Navy who we actually get to use our first names with other than the people of our own rank. 
It's like our given names are our hidden children that never get to come out and play. Well, except with our framers. They'll use our first names, won't they? I'm not sure. I haven't met her yet, Campana said. Well, she needs you. My frame is in contact with her as Eleanor Gray gets repaired, and he tells me yours is starting to drift without an anchor. She's losing it. It's your ship, and I know you're buried in briefings and tasks, but I'd suggest as soon as you do a lap and get the keys, you go straight to the chamber. Don't mean to be intrusive. Campana said, I believe I will do that very thing. This is my favorite part, Kathy said, a wide, round smile on her red cheeks. Eleanor Gray? The computer beeped that it was listening. This is Captain Kathy Botha, commanding officer of the Akunga Station and acting captain of Eleanor Gray. Access code 1 Manatee Blue 580 Quantum. In all matters of technicality and standing, I transfer authority to Captain Claire Campana. The computer bleeped in acknowledgement, waiting for the next part. Eleanor Gray, Campana said. This is Captain Claire Campana. My personal access code is 25 Ceiling Ash 11 Hadron 3. In all matters of technicality and standing, I take authority as your ship's captain. In the name of the One World Government, I stand ready. She sat in the captain's seat. Kathy said, In the name of the One World Government, I stand relieved. The computer chirped a very unique chirp, and all the screens on the bridge flashed as the systems rebooted. Hollows lit up surrounding the captain's chair. The system was smart enough to put the screens right where Campana wanted them to be from previous posts, repair screens, updates on cargo manifests, crew placement, number of marines, air pressure, gravity readings, docking status. Campana said, Eleanor Gray displays to preset four. This preset was limited to emergency notifications only, and many of those would pop up through her smart caller, even though the ship's use of that technology was limited due to age. She unexpectedly felt the warm, loving hug of Kathy Botha, a strange thing, breaking Navy decorum and rules of human interaction. They didn't even know each other more than one minute. Sorry, Kathy said. It's just so exciting. I love it when all my little duckies are well enough to fly and I transfer command back to captains. But this time was different. I was thrilled to get a chance to work on the gray and I'm even more thrilled to see you take the helm. William was a really good guy and a great captain. I'd known him some years. I can see him in you. You're going to rock this thing, girl. Thank you, Kathy, Campana said trying not to tear up. First rule of being a captain, it's okay to cry if you're alone, with another captain, or with your framer. Campana laughed a little, and a few tears escaped in the process. What was wrong with her? She didn't even cry at the funeral, but here? This was his space. For her entire adult life, anytime she pictured her father, she pictured him not back home on Earth, but here, on this bridge, in this chair, in her chair. She felt like it was all cresting over her head like a wave that she knew better than to swim against. But she held back her tears. For now. She was also cowed a little at Kathy's behavior. It was a different take on Captain Tang's inability to let his guard down around Campana back on the Clinton. Captains could be themselves with captains. What exactly were the demands of command? How isolated was she about to feel once they launched from Akunga into their mission? One last thing, Claire. I just completed some orders from the Alpha Messenger's attaché. 
He placed the framer for a Kunga station directly onto the Eleanor Gray. He's here now. The attaché has ordered that all construction efforts that are pushed by a framer be directed at getting your ship spaceworthy. The old dame trumps any other ship being repaired by a Kunga station for the moment. The old dame? Kampana asked. That's her nickname, Captain. I know most ships in World Navy have a nickname that isn't used for much more than t-shirts or football game jerseys, but the Eleanor Gray has been called the old dame for decades. It's all your father ever called her when we'd talk over repairs. I have heard him call him that, Claire suddenly remembered. I thought it was just his thing. Oh no, even the Commodores call it that. So, Campana asked, is that odd having a Kunga's framer move to my ship instead of remain on your station in his own framing chamber? A bit. It's been done before. We'll get an order from one of the Commodores who need a particular ship or fleet fixed as a WorldGov priority. The rest of the station makes do. We are staffed by 50,000 trained construction specialists. They can manage without a psychic push in the right direction. So, as of 0950 this morning, my framer, Theodore Brown, was moved to your ship's framing chamber. Eventually, his frame will more than likely take over your framer's own mind frame, because Teddy is one of the strongest framers in the fleet. So far, every time he's done this, the framers find themselves in his overpowering mind frame, which is a very sterile 1959-1960. I spent a lot of time there in his chamber marveling at the details that his mind has constructed as reality. Framers find themselves with him, but when he leaves their chamber, they're back to their own mind frames where and whenever that is and don't even remember it. Either way, it may take a day or two for your framer to fully integrate him. He might not even be there yet, according to her perceptions. Good to know. Thanks for the heads up, Kathy. Captain Tang told me about this phenomenon a little bit on the Clinton. You think it'll have an effect on my crew, having two framers pushing them? No. Ted will mostly be pushing members of the Akunga crew and staff to repair the old dame. Your framer, Josephine, Kampana added. Josephine will exclusively frame the new crew of your ship. Their mental profiles will have been uploaded into her two attendants, so they'll know exactly who she has the authority to push. Like I said, it's a bit rare, but not unprecedented. None of the crew are aware of the mind frame at any rate. They just do as they're pushed. Teddy's done this about a dozen times on other ships. Quite remarkable. Oh, and life pro tip. Everyone from my station will be in yellow, so anyone in naval black is under you. I'm sure you won't know names to faces for a little bit, but that might help guide you toward the right people. Kampana paused and finally said, Kathy, forget the tour. Take me to the framing chamber. I want to get this out of the way. Captain Kampana stepped to the compartment starboard of the bridge. To the aft were her quarters and offices, but to the starboard was the framing chamber. This was another ceremony only she could attend. Kathy Botha had departed the ship and headed back to her station. Now that command was transferred to Campana, the Marines would have had orders to kill Kathy had she come back here. Though the ship was scant on personnel, there was a full contingent of Marines here, eight in total. They stood in their torsion skirts, flechette weapons, and vibro sabers always at the ready. The two at the front of the corridor saluted, and the six in front of the portal leading to the framing chamber stood ready for combat. Campana saluted back, and one of the Marines approached a control pad. It stood in front of a floor scanner. Campana stood on the scanner, and the blue hum of a bioscan pulsed over her body three times. The air said, Captain Claire Campana, Captain, 
Eleanor Gray. All access granted. The six Marines at the end of the hall stood down. Right this way, Captain, a Marine said, walking away from the busy six. I'm Major Despande. Welcome to your ship. Despande. Campana didn't know him personally, not yet, but knew his position from studying the personnel files on the flight out from Earth. He was from Pakistan, late 40s, and was the most seasoned combat veteran of the entire crew, having fought the Deviant Uprisings in Prague a few years back. He was fully masked in black combat gear, stuff more ominous than the GPF war, so Campana couldn't try to memorize his face for future conversations. Despande was head of security for the framing chamber, lived in quarters just a few feet away. It was a rigorous post, no time off, no shore leave, and on a Razor-class vessel, that meant it was probably the single most rigorous post in the World Navy. Thank you, Major. Good to meet you. I look forward to hearing your assessment of chamber security once things settle down a bit. I've got a lot to say on that matter, ma'am, but the State of the Union is good. I'm ready to access my chamber. Despande approached the outer portal to the chamber. There was an almost comical cutout in the wall of a figure shaped like a human being. Despande stepped into it, and as he did so, the other seven marines drew their guns and faced to the door that led away from the framing portal as if an attempt to invade was imminent. Their sudden precise explosion of readiness startled Campana, and she hoped desperately that none of them sensed it. The little anthropomorphized alcove lit up white as Major Despande activated the door with his presence. Four red lights appeared in the wall above where Campana assumed the main portal would materialize. One turned to white with a ping, then another, then another. As the fourth red light turned white, a klaxon sounded four times as the lights blinked and the portal appeared. The seamless perfect of the white shell of the framing chamber looked as if an egg suddenly had a crack in it. The crack widened, moved with a purpose and a shape. The portal appeared, and the thing was seamless no more. There was a pop, and a hiss of air exchanging, and it slid open. Inside was a small, bare apartment. A bed, a desk, a space to make food, and a woman in maybe her late thirties, the framer for the Eleanor Gray. She wore the typical framer uniform, the loose-fitting shirt and blousy pants. She stood with her eyes distant, seeing something no one else saw, lost in her mind frame. Beside her, floating just off the ground, were her two attendants, sophisticated robotic assistants there to meet her needs. One constantly monitored the framer's biosignals, and the other constantly monitored the ship. The framer paid no attention to the door being open or to Captain Campana. The captain was disturbed at the sight of the attendants. Whatever race created them must have done so by making them intentionally horrifying for the human psyche. No way the impact they had on the reptile brain was a coincidence of xenobiological evolution. Tucked in the corner of the space was a second cot. On it, a man slept, his back to Campana. He wore the robes. It must be a Congustation's Theodore Brown. She wondered if he'd be present in the mind frame. Captain Botha indicated it may take a few days for them to fully integrate now that he was in the same framing chamber. His own awful attendants floated over him as he slept. One turned to face Campana, sniffers and scanners actively examining the captain. Campana fully entered the chamber, and as the door slid back, she felt a familiar sense of vertigo. It was just like training back in the Mojave. 
The world spun a bit, or rather, she did, and Campana closed her eyes and touched the wall for support and a reference for her middle ear to recognize. The spinning stopped, and the temperature plummeted. The air went from the familiar compressed scent of a naval vessel to the crisp and thin atmosphere ripe with the smell of pine and smoke. A breeze was blowing. Campana felt that the metal wall of the chamber was no longer metal. It was a lumpy surface, familiar to the touch but hard to pin down with her eyes closed. She opened them. She stood in a serene, white, snow-filled landscape. Great snow-capped peaks to all sides indicated she was in the mountains somewhere. Her hand rested on the trunk of a massive tree, devoid of leaves but skeletal arms covered in snow. Her feet were sunk well past the ankle in a deep layer of wet snow, undisturbed save her own footprints and a few flecks of bark and pine needles here and there. Her tracks went back down the driveway that showed signs of having been plowed but snowed back over. Claire looked herself over. Her black naval outfit was replaced with a thick downy jacket and jeans that were soaking wet as if she'd been walking through the snow for some time. She felt the tug of a bag, some sort of satchel which she was wearing across her belly. She felt her head and noticed she was wearing some sort of a knit cap. Beside her in the snow was a large army duffel bag which she slung over her shoulder, assuming it was hers here in the mind frame. Ahead of her was a massive home. Or no, a lodge or a hotel of some sort with a few distinct architectural wings. It looked as if it had been recently painted and construction material was stacked in heaps and covered in plastic sheeting on the great front porch of the place. She walked to the front door, assuming this was where she was meant to go. On the front porch, she kicked the snow off of her boots and approached the grand double doors. She knocked and waited, but nothing happened. She walked around the porch looking in the oversized windows but found the hotel to be empty. Near the front steps was a large brass bell. She grabbed the handle and swung it, so the bell sounded several times. It was a sharp, loud reverberation that echoed on the porch but was swallowed by the snow behind her. In the distant bowels of the place, she heard dogs barking. She waited a minute, hearing the dogs come no closer, and rang the brass bell again. Paused, rang it again. Finally, she heard the dogs come running forward. She heard someone step across the wood flooring inside as the dogs came close, barking just on the opposite side of the door. It opened. So that's it for part one of chapter 18. Again, um, our next episode will be chapter 18, part two, and you'll be able to see exactly what happens when the door opens. Um, as always, you can visit us on mindframepodcast.com. We've got a really interesting store full of merchandise, and you can also find uh, my first novel, 181 Pine, and you can find the books of Zach Smith, who is our host on the sit-down episodes. Um, you can always uh, go to podbelly.com to find a great list of other a podcast that you can think about downloading, such as Path of Legends, which is another uh, fiction podcast that you can check out, and Ectoplasm, which is uh, a show about all things that go bump in the night. If you're into paranormal, then check out Ectoplasm. I've been a guest on Ectoplasm a couple times myself, so if you want to hear my paranormal stories, then you can always uh, hunt down the episodes that I uh, did a guest spot on. Um, as always, if you like us and you want to support us, then go to social media. You can find us on Facebook at Mindframe Podcast. 
You can find us on Instagram at the Mind Frame Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at the Mind Frame Pod, and you can find us on Reddit at r slash Mind Frame Podcast. Giving a share, giving a like, uh, uh, making a post, those things really help with all the crazy metrics that drive the back end of podcasts and so forth. So uh, sharing, posting, liking, subscribing really means a lot to us, really goes uh, a long way. And then final shout out, uh, there is our other podcast that myself and Brent and our partner Brad work on called the Sofa King Podcast. It is a very much not safe for work uh, take where we do research on topics that our listeners propose. And it's everything from corporations to historical moments to elements of World War II and serial killers. You name it, we cover it. Uh, we make bad jokes and laugh a lot and drink whiskey. And then you can also track down Brad's um, other podcast, Brewing the 99, which is a podcast devoted to Magic the Gathering. So if you like to uh, tap mana and summon creatures, then that is the podcast for you. So as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for um, enjoying part one. And I hope uh, when part two drops, you will enjoy that as well. And in the meantime, remember, the Lariat is closing. <laughs>